Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, about a man who sells his soul to stay eternally young, is a picture that shocked Victorian England. Wilde was put on trial and ultimately sent to prison for two years of hard labor for gross indecency, for having an affair with Lord Alfred Douglas, nicknamed Bosey, and for having an affair with other young men. He was disgraced, vilified, and while he'd been the toast of the town with plays such as The Importance of Being Earnest and Lady Windermere's Fan, and I think The Importance of Being Earnest is one of the greatest plays in the English language. So after the trial, no one wanted to talk to him, no one wanted to hear what he had to say, and he had to leave England for exile in France. I spoke to Nicholas Frankel, professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University and a graduate of Oxford, the University of Southern California, and the University of Virginia, who published a biography of Wilde called Oscar Wilde, The Unrepentant Years. And Frankel's book really corrected my impression that Wilde had been crushed. He'd become a scapegoat and a martyr for gay and LGBTQ rights because he was sent to prison at a time when homosexuality was illegal in Britain, but he dared to write a book and to write about the love that, in his lover's Lord Alfred Douglas' words, was the love that dare not speak its name. In the trial he became very famous, and afterwards no one wanted to talk to him any longer. The plays were no longer performed, the books were no longer published, but Frankel corrected this image and showed how Wilde actually wanted to rehabilitate his career, he wrote very moving and important poems after he was released in prison. He did not repent and ask forgiveness and grovel and beg for society to recognize who he was and to forgive him for what they had called his sins and crimes. Instead, he actually kept on working. Professor Frankel also edited the annotated prison writings and the annotated importance of being earnest and, importantly, a new uncensored edition of The Picture of Dorian Gray. Our conversation focuses on that book, which features in the trial against Wilde as a piece of evidence. In a way, literature itself is on trial there. Free speech is on trial and gets convicted. And I think there's a through line from the 1890s in England, when Wilde is on trial and sentenced to today. So I talked to Nick on Zoom, of course, during the pandemic, during this Pride Month, about Wilde, one of the great heroes in the literary canon, 
and one of the greatest writers in the English language. So I'm really thrilled today to have Professor Nicholas Frankel here. First of all, thank you for joining me on Think About It. You're very welcome. A pleasure to be here. So, Nick, you've written major biography of the last years of Oscar Wilde's life, and you've re-edited the picture of Dorian Gray um, in this new edition, an annotated uncensored edition. I saw you write somewhere that you said you thought that new edition, which was based on uh, archival work you've done, brings the book a little bit more out of the closet. Yes. <laughs> Can you say a little bit how you got interested in Wild and then why the picture of Dorian Gray? What is the status of this book, which people have said has changed not only literature, but the world? Oh, well, uh, how did I get interested in Wild? Let me start with that question. I got interested in Wild years and years ago, like everybody else. I think it was his language, really. I mean, the incredible sensuality and the physicality of his... Uh, language combined, of course, with his wit. I mean, I was just spellbound, as I think every reader uh, of Wild is. And of course, his his attention to the texture of language. Uh, they say, of course, that his uh, written language has the texture of the speaking voice. I think I was haunted by his voice in his language. And the more spellbound I became by his writing, by his language, I think I felt his presence Uh, in his writing more acutely. So I think that led on to an interest in Wilde himself. Uh, but like every student of Wilde, it was the works, I think, that really drew me in when I was a young man. Uh, and with the picture of Dorian Gray, I think I was always troubled, uh, you know, having grown up with the longer censored version that most people of my generation grew up with, the, the book version from 1891. I, I was always troubled by it, uh, even before I was a scholar before I knew about the background of the, the novel. It just didn't really hang right. I knew there were evasions. I knew there were silences uh, in that text. And even the plot uh, uh, of the 20 chapters, there are chapters that seem not really to cohere. And then I suppose when I uh, became a researcher and started to explore the composition and the publication of the novel, those silences... <laughs> those evasions became more real to me. I could see, of course, uh, that Wilde was being forced to uh, silence his writing. And then, of course, when I went into the archives and explored the, his publishing arrangements, it was quite evident to me that uh, he was uh, being censored by his publisher, by his first editor, and thereafter, of course, became acutely self-conscious about what he could publish and could not publish. And of course, there was a huge outcry about the serial version of the novel, uh, even, even with the novel having been censored before publication with those hundred inflammatory words taken out by the first editor. It was still immensely controversial when it was published. I think he said he, he had read, thrown into his wastebasket, 214 bad reviews of the novel. And they weren't just bad. Some of them were actually threatening legal action. When it comes out first, it's published, as you said, in serial form. So it's in a magazine, both in America and in England, and it's just published. And people picked it up while they're getting on the train or in their, in their clubs or wherever you pick up a magazine at that point. And it's very popular, right? So when it comes out, it, he got 214 letters, but people really respond strongly to the story. 
That's right. It's a popular magazine, uh, particularly in, in America. I mean, and as you say, magazines designed to be read, you know, like short stories generally at that time, be, be read in, in a short space of time, often in transit. I mean, the short story very allied to the medium of the railway with, with, with railway transit. So, yes, it, it has this uh, this popular reaction that those... Uh, the magazine is selling like hot cakes. <laughs> uh, but in Britain, uh, the reaction was very swift. The leading distributor of magazine literature in Britain, W.H. Smith, removes the magazine from its railway bookstall. So it immediately becomes un- unavailable. By, by that point, it's probably sold several thousand copies. So. What's, the, what's the controversy? Why does the, before we get to, back to the editor, what he changed, but why does this publisher, who could make a lot of money, why does he pull the issue of that magazine from the newsstand? Well, uh, I think you have to look at the context. I mean, the publication of Dorian Gray, indeed the composition of Dorian Gray, came very shortly after a very, very scandalous controversy in uh, British history when the police invaded a male brothel uh, in the central London in late 1899. This is a uh, really just a couple of months before the composition of uh, Wild starts composing the picture drawing Grey. And it becomes quickly clear, pre- pretty clear pretty quickly, that a number of well-connected aristocrats, politician, royal figures are patronising this male brothel in central London. And the press get wind of it. Uh, but it's clear that the judiciary and the government don't want to press charges against many of the aristocrats, the well-connected people who are patron- men, of course, who, who are patronizing this brothel. And indeed, they sort of try to hush it up. And in fact, the only pro- successful prosecutions are, are of the, the journalists who are trying to publicize the activities of this brothel. So with that, that's, that terrible scandal taking place in late 89 and the controversy over it was handled by the judiciary, then Wilde comes along. Uh, writes this novel, publishes it, and in in some ways he gets uh, the force of the controversy. You know, the controversy over the brothel carries over into the controversy over the picture of Grace. So I think there's a kind of paranoia about male homosexuality in the wake of this this scandal. He's quite famous at this point already, and I, I like one of the reviews that I think it's you quoted in the new introduction as Mr. Wilde has brains and art and style but he writes for outlawed noblemen and perverted telegraph boys. Yes. So there was rent boys in this brothel. But he's famous already before he publishes the picture of Dorian Gray. So he steps into this moment when there is a big controversy already. But he's really well known and he's a celebrity in America and in England. And he's trading on his celebrity in America. I think his celebrity in America is one of the reasons uh, why he published the novel in America because he already has connections with the American uh, uh, literary establishment, especially in Philadelphia, has a good relationship with Joseph Stoddart, the editor of Lippincott's. It was Stoddart, incidentally, who had introduced Wilde to Whitman seven years earlier when Wilde was touring America. So there's a connection there, I suppose, at the very least one could say, a a kind of homosocial circle uh, in Philadelphia that Wilde was a part of. Can you say one more thing about before we get to the book and and what the book will lead to? He tours America and he makes himself into this representative of this movement of aesthetics, aestheticism. But how can we think of that, of a writer from England arriving here and selling out (laughs) theaters to just talk? Because he's just witty and charming and kind of a strange kind of peacock of a person. 
Absolutely. You know, people can't place him. Uh, and of course, he's not English. Uh, uh, he's Irish. And some Americans are very aware of the fact that, that Wilde's origins are more Irish than English, because his mother, of course, was, a, was an eminent Irish figure, an Irish poet, a political poet. And Irish Americans, particularly literary, you know, uh, Irish Americans were well aware of his mother. Uh, and they saw, in fact, him as the son of mother. But that, that doesn't really account for his response uh, the way in which the mass of Americans, you're right, he's, he presents himself as an exotic and he's uh, understood in America as a kind of cultural exotic who has this unique sense of himself. He creates his own aura. He creates, he creates himself. The, the, the Oscar Wilde we know is in fact really created in America in some, to some extent on that tour. But that's very interesting in a way when you think an Irish author who becomes... British, he said, he, among the many things he loses is his accent when he goes to Oxford. And then he yes. comes to America and does the quintessential American thing is to invent himself as a celebrity. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and of course, his image, his visual image is cemented in America, particularly, I can't help feeling, because he, you know, he, he immediately has a number, he and his tour manager have these terrific photographs taken uh, the moment he arrives in New York. He's not even a couple of days off the boat before he's sitting for Napoleon Cerrone, the celebrity photographer in New York. Who, who creates these wonderful series of publicity stills that thereafter circulate around the world, in fact, not just in America. And so it cements this image of Wilde as an exotic, as a clean-shaven, you know, long-haired, very elegant uh, aesthete. And of course, his uh, clean-shaven looks are really, at that time, uh, something remarkable for because um, the American ideal of manhood was very, you know, bearded, mustachioed, a Western sort of <laughs> martial look. So Wilde is really setting himself up in opposition, I think, to stereotypical notions of 19th century American manhood. Uh, and he gets a lot of criticism for it. In fact, some of the earliest attacks on his masculinity and indeed his sexuality take place in America uh, during that tour. And there's a this association of style over substance, of his look that he becomes famous for, then the green carnation, ultimately all these elements which are all surface, and then he celebrates surface and says in, the, in his own preface to Picture Drawing Great, it's all surface. And he's known as somebody, I think when you said earlier, when you were initially interested in the language, I think people are attracted to Wilde in the beginning because it's so witty and seems to kind of shimmer yeah. But there's a depth under it. But there's something so seductive about all the jokes and the importance of being earnest, which I happen to think is the greatest play in the English language. <laughs> yes, many would agree. <laughs> it's just an amazing play, and you sort of feel it's a play on language. But there's something underneath. So even Wilde's image in America, he has this, he wears the great clothes, and he looks amazing, he looks unusual. But there's something else he's selling, this idea that there's something deeper in style. That's exactly right. I mean, seduction is exactly the right word. This, this, uh, this attention to style, to surface, uh, with this sort of tease or suggestion, almost a, a provocation to look beneath it and try to uh, read it in a deeper way. And indeed, that is to expose the whole practice of reading uh, for what it is uh, and to, to challenge it, to challenge, as you say, the idea that there is a depth beneath the surface. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their own peril, I think is the, you know, the, 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 full, the full quotation, isn't it, from the preface. But at the same time, once surface 
office and symbols. So he is suggesting there is some kind of what he would call symbolism beneath the surface. Uh, and that, that, of course, you know, in, in America in the early 1880s, uh, that's where the sexuality really comes into play, isn't it? That new style of masculinity is masking a new kind of sexuality. That's the suggestion, I think, that, that many, many Americans pick up on in the course of that lecture tour. Which is interesting. And then this strange meeting with uh, Whitman, I think it's in Newark or somewhere, where he sort of, they sit in this room and then they, he said immediately he offers to use his first name. And then Whitman becomes America's bard, the great poet celebrated by Emerson. And also in plain view of everybody is kind of sort of living out this other new form of sexuality where he's just in love with all of America, which yes. is kind of expansive idea. But when we go to the picture of Dorian Gray and sort of this play between surface style and substance, the book starts or the story starts, I guess it's written first as a story really for this magazine as a serialized story. Uh, uh, he doesn't call it a novel uh, at first. Uh, it's published complete in one, one uh, number of a magazine. So that's atypical for a novel. Uh, so in some ways, it, you're right, it's a novella, a long short story. Only it comes to be conceptualized as a novel. And it's commissioned, right? He gets an offer to say, write a good story for us and we'll sell it. That's right. He's commissioned at the same time that Arthur Conan Doyle is commissioned for a Sherlock Holmes story. The same lunch meeting in London at the Langham uh, Hotel, the editor of Lippincott's, commissions both Conan Doyle and uh, Anne Wilde to write a story for his magazine. I think he also engages Kipling, in fact, on that same around the same time. So he's, he's come, the editor comes over to London to, to engage English, British writers to write for his publication. But yes, uh, um, it is a short story commissioned for the magazine. And it's not the first story that Wilde thinks he will publish in the magazine. He start, initially starts to write a different story. And that's the story that later came to be known as The Fisherman and His, his Soul. Right. which appeared in 1891 eventually. Uh, that, and that truly is a short story. In fact, I'm about to republish that story. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's coming out, the new sort of the short stories. So if we're thinking of this meeting, so Lippin, so, uh, his name is Stoddard. Uh, Stoddard, yes, yes. Stoddard, he comes over to London. So it's like as if we're imagining you having a lunch and you're having Zadie Smith and Amanda Adichie and, I don't know, Tom Stoppard or something and saying, yes. can you all write a story for me, please? I'll pay you a good fee. And then one of them submits a story and the editor thinks, hell no, this, I cannot publish like this. Yes, he doesn't tell Wilde, of course. Uh, he, and he has a reputation for racy, uh, racy fiction. He's, he's published uh, Amelie Chandler's The Quick and the Dead, which has created a bit of a stir in 1888 in America. So he, Lippincott has a reputation in America for cutting edge, slightly you know, provocative, sexually racy, but not as racy, but he, uh, racy fiction. But, but this was too racy for Stoddard. He fears for women readers. He, at least that's what he, he thinks this is. Uh, he has many, many of his readers are women. And uh, and so he fears that the the version of the novel that Wilde sends to him will, he says at least, will will offend women readers. He can't feels he can't uh, put it out uh, to, to a female readership. Now that sounds to me like a pretext, <laughs> you know, making women the scapegoat. Uh, and at this moment, is there a fear, you talk about this in the preface and also in, your, in, in the biography then, is there a fear that actually the book will be censored or they will be punished or is it just a fear we're going to offend some potential readers or be, you know, be, like criticized for it? 
No, I don't. In America, there's no, I don't think there's any fear of litigation. I don't think litigation is on the mind of Stoddart. He's just concerned with his readership and to some extent with his relationship with his publisher, because I think uh, the correspondence that I unearth, a lot of it is between the editor and the publisher. And, and it suggests that the editor felt really uh, that he had to answer to the publisher as much as to the readership. But when the novel is published in Britain, uh, there is the fear of litigation. And, and Br Britain has put legislation, quite severe anti-homosexual legislation in place. And indeed, not just anti-homosexual legislation, but legislation against uh, obscenity uh, in place. Uh, so there's much more of a litigious culture in Britain. In fact, uh, uh, other authors, uh, Zola's translator had been imprisoned uh, just shortly before this for, for publishing and translating, uh, I forget which, which Zola novel it is, in fact, but he serves time. So, and of course, so when Do The Picture of Dorian Gray is published in Britain, suddenly the law is an issue. The worry here is sort of this grouping of sort of obscenity, uh, anti-homosexual legislation. So all these things are kind of grouped in their thing. And this is what the book actually then kind of explodes into, this kind of situation where you have Victorian England the way we imagine it as kind of a repressive, very regulated society where what Freud will teach us, I guess, that sexuality is always under the surface, not talked about, except in these instances when there's an exposure of a brothel and suddenly all these names are flying around and then they have to tamp that down really quickly. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and, I, and I think Pro Wilde probably had the sense, in fact, had already had the sense since 1882 that he could be more open in America. He loved being in America. He felt he could be himself in America and indeed in France, too, where, of course, he spent the last days of his life. But he felt America was more open to sexuality, to all alternative notions of, of gender and sexuality. So you're absolutely right. I think in Britain, this repressiveness uh, you know, uh, is really, it's really clear in the way that uh, Dorian Gray is reacted to. And the difference, of course, in, in the ways that America and Britain react to that novel. It's not uh, irrelevant, of course, that the novel was used against Wilde in the criminal proceedings when he was prosecuted for gross indecency five years later in 1995, uh, particularly, in fact, in the libel trial that just prefaced the criminal prosecutions, but it was alluded to in the first criminal trial too. So, so again, that litigiousness comes into play with terrible consequences four years later, of course. And that's a very unusual fact that the book is used in a trial to indict the author. And Wilde keeps on insisting a book is not its author. Art is made for its own sake. It doesn't reveal the morality or politics. Let's say we would say maybe politics today. And nonetheless, it's used as evidence. The judge, I think, advises them and said, do not use that as direct evidence of what he's thinking. But the tension between the book as an expression of this homoerotic or homosexual relationship or the things that the, the editor feels controversial, they'll come back to haunt Wilde. And I'm curious whether you think Wilde was aware of this, whether to what extent was he aware when he was writing, to what extent did the editor roll that back and say, we cannot release all of this. And nonetheless, then the book became evidence in the trial. Well, he did say several years later, in private, in a private correspondence, in fact, with a, in private correspondence with a young man who I think he was trying to seduce, that, that there is more of himself in the book than people realize. And there's this famous quotation that, that I use in my introduction. Basil Hallward is who I think I am. Lord Henry Wotton is who the world 
thinks me and Dorian is who I would be in other ages, perhaps. So it seems to me that Wilde, at least three years later, was very, very conscious of how much of himself was in this novel. And indeed, I think, you know, a, a couple of decades later, James Joyce said, I think Wilde just felt this compulsion to confess, to represent himself. I mean, that's totally understandable, isn't it? Because you know, homosexual men just didn't have the space to articulate who they were. He'd been striving to do this, in fact, for years before Dorian Gray. I mean, just a few months before he began composing the picture of Dorian Gray, he wrote this fantastic story about Shakespeare's sonnets called The Portrait of Mr. W.H., again, arguing that Shakespeare, with some good reason, was enamored of a young man. And of course, a number of the sonnets, a good number of them, in fact, are addressed to a young man. Uh, it's only the closing sonnets that are addressed to the dark lady. So Wilde has been trying to uh, represent homosexual experience for several years. Uh, I think this essay on Shakespeare's sonnets is quite interesting, and it's sort of a strange fictional tale, sort of of someone researching who who the sonnets were addressed by. So it's kind of a literary criticism masquerading as fiction. Exactly. In the Shakespeare world, I, what I've just found, and I don't really know the Shakespeare world that well, I think people dismiss it or don't really look at it as serious criticism. They think it's sort of wild speculating or something. I think it's really an, an amazing reading of yes. and a poet and sort of actually what it does, I think it really animates these poems for someone's concerns and says they speak to me and they speak to a human condition in a different way. Yes, so, yes. And of course, he doesn't. He doesn't want it to be taken seriously, right? I mean, the um, <laughs> the the it's only style that's serious. <laughs> the only um, the only serious things are, are 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 the stylistic things. So he writes it as fiction deliberately. He doesn't doesn't really want it to be an intervention in scholarship. And when you when you the quote you just used, where he said where he says the last sentence, story and is what I would like to be, perhaps in another age. Dorian Gray, when the people who start reading a novel first, they probably heard about it beforehand. He's this uh, insanely beautiful person who has a portrait painted of him, tucks it away in a secret studio, and the portrait ages and he stays eternally beautiful. Many of us would probably say, well, that's not such a bad option. It's a bit of a Faustian deal. You sell your soul a bit, but you would look amazing. So in some ways, <laughs> in our age, I always think in the 21st century where image is in some areas not everything but quite a lot yes we figures the obsession with image over anything else and my question goes back to when he says dorian what i would like to be who would want to be dorian gray how the book ends is so horrific yeah that's not not so much dorian gray at the end of the novel perhaps dorian gray at the beginning of the novel i mean dorian gray in the novel goes off the rails doesn't he but he, but he goes off the rails because he has to suppress and evade who he truly is. And of course, that suppression and that evasion leads to a, you know, increasing decadence and ultimately violence. So the suppression of who he truly is, it's not so much who, who he truly is that leads to the denouement of the, the it's the denial of who he truly is, you know, the suppression and the evasion. So, so I can see where Wilde's coming from. I mean, he's not totally identifying with Dorian because I think he's, Dorian is in denial of himself. Uh, Do you read it the way you just said? Do you read it as the figure of Dorian in the beginning? In the beginning, he's actually kind of an, a strange innocent. He's maybe somewhat corrupted by Lord Henry or not, or influenced. But when you're saying then society doesn't let him live his life and he becomes and goes off the rails 
in response to this pressure or these restrictions? Yes, that's how I read it. I, absolutely. And I, uh, I read it, you know, his denial of himself and his denial, of course, of Basil Hallward's uh, feelings to, towards him. Uh, I mean, there's almost obviously an element of self-hatred, but also an element of, uh, how can I call it, homophobia in Dorian Gray's own makeup, particularly in his response to Basil Hallward, when Basil Hallward confesses his feelings for him in the uncensored version, much clearer, of course, in the uncensored version. It's much clearer. What is much clearer when you discover this, the difference between the original and then what you just said, that the the relationship between Basil, who is the painter, who is so mesmerized by Dorian's beauty first, but then is mesmerized by Dorian as a person also, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that per- the personal mesmer- uh, mesmerism, I suppose, that I, I mean is clearer. Because, of course, in the, I think in the revised version, the book version, Hallward presents his mesmerism as, as a kind of artistic mesmerism. I was, I was mesmerized by uh, his beauty. He was an I- artistic ideal for me. You were an ideal. You know, you, you were the personification of what I was looking for in art. But in the uncensored version, particularly in the text, as Wilde submitted it to uh, his editor before it was censored, it's much clearer to me that, um, that, that uh, and I think many readers, that, that Hallward is actually in love with him. It's not so much about art, it's, uh, uh, it's desire. It's physically, it's, it's desire, it's love, it's, you know, it's not so sublimated. It's quite nice, you show, you give a couple examples of the difference and you show how in the, um, what you call the censored version is that the 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 people who edited it took out some hyphens and put some periods in, and when you restore it to the version that Wilde anticipated, it's actually much more urgent. There's a kind of it moves from you are just so beautiful to I want to be with you, but the transition is a hyphen, and I actually like the fact that the little tiny punctuation changes the entire the kind of emotional dimension of those of those those sentences. So. In the first version that we got initially, sort of Basil Howard said, a painter who wants to have this platonic ideal, beauty is just an ideal. In the version that you give us now, he's actually really attracted to this man. That's right. I appreciate you saying that, Odie. And, and even gestures, too, the, the way in which Basil uses his hand. Doesn't he put his hand on Dorian's shoulder? I think he even holds, he talks about holding Dorian's hand at some point. And, you know, Whatever those gestures indicate, what the very fact that Wilde changed them, and as I recall, sub- cut them out of the book-length verse and suggests that they were too, uh, too provocative, too revealing, uh, uh, too suggestive of, of sexual desire, you know, or at least taboo desire. Um, but but clearly, already um, the censored version was already revealing enough for especially these English critics, the 214 people who thought this is an immoral book, this should not be published, it's dung, it's, it's rubbish. It, no one, some people reviewed it and said, I don't even want to talk about it, it's so vile. So in some ways, even the censored version already put something in front of British society that they couldn't handle at all. Yeah, that's right. So the really, I suppose we're saying, talking about two different acts of censorship, aren't we? The, edit, the, the censoring of the publishing house uh, and then Wilde's subsequent uh, censoring of the novel, which is also an expansion of the length of the novel, but there's still acts of censorship there in reaction to the controversy aroused by the serial version. So yes, two different, and of course at that point he feels the legal threat because some of the reviews have 
obscurely hinted at litigation, that the government should involve itself, the police should involve themselves. Uh, uh, so, so I think Wilde and his publisher are actually fearful at that point. So this is, it's published in 1890, right? And then the, first, the serial version is 1890, yeah. We got to bring Bosey on stage now. So Lord Alfred Douglas, really key <laughs> character. So the book is out now. Wilde has these great successes, The Importance of Being Earnest, Lady Windermere's Fan, which I also love. It actually, it's lovely. I, read it, I read it recently and actually was reading it on my computer and I cried at the end. And I'm thinking, how can I cry over the fate of Lady Windermere? But I actually, I was quite happy crying. And I thought, I can't believe this, this play got me so gripped that I really wanted to have this resolution at the end, which is a kind of very <laughs> amazing denouement. Lady Windermere's fan is a great play. And of course, it's so overshadowed by the importance of Ernest, which I agree is, is probably the greatest play in the English language, certainly one of them. But Lady Windermere's fan is a terrific play, the way that she changes and these exp the dissection of these marriages in yeah. more serious plays, I think is just utterly fascinating, uh, and particularly uh, the way he, his attention to uh, to women, his concern with, with women as, 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 you know, full human beings. It's very evident in Lady Windermere's Anne, obviously. Um, so we have Lord Alfred Douglas now, so they start having a relationship, the younger man, and then there's uh, the, the infamous father, the Scarlet Marquess, yeah. I guess he's called, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's the Marquis of Queensbury. That's right. The ninth, is it? I forget. <laughs> yes, the scion of this old aristocratic family. And th this relationship will be become, from what I read in your book, it becomes more and more public that actually Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas, who's a younger man, they're seen out dining, they go to places, so it becomes kind of visible. And he's a celebrity at this point, so he's kind yeah. of fighting in front of British society here I am, this very famous author, and I'm dining, and I'm a married man, I have two boys, and I'm dining mm -hmm. with this handsome young man. And then this man, Bosie's father, completely loses it over that fact. He just feels totally humiliated by wild behavior, right? That's right. Totally humiliated. Uh, he's an, obviously a very controlling patriarch uh so there's this personal relationship you know the personal family context there is in play too his, his relations with all his sons are terrible uh, and in fact he uh another lord alfred douglas's older brother lord Drummond lanrig uh, is supposed uh, a lot of people feel and the marcus queensbury felt had uh, probably had a, a sexual affair with with a government minister and had then subsequently committed uh, suicide. That's the theory about Lord Alfred Douglas's brother. Uh, and so that is also motivating the Marquess of Queensbury, this political fallout, the, the death of his other son. Uh, and, and in a way, so Wilde and, and Lord Alfred, I don't want to say a scapegoated, but it's some of that grief. And can you say something about <laughs> the, what triggers this trial then, where the, where the picture of Dorian Gray becomes so important? So, uh, Wilde says at some point later, when he's already in prison to Douglas, he says, I know you loved me, but your hate for your father was greater than your yeah. love for me. So Lord Alfred Douglas kind of, so what happens that actually makes Wilde enter into this, what we, and I don't know, is this a bad or, <laughs> a, bad or a good decision to actually do what he does to sue him? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? Why, right. why did he enter into this litigation against uh, 
uh, Douglas's father. Of course, he he wrote up he wrote those lines about Lord Alfred in prison in his De Profundis prison letter and said your your you, you, you knew only hatred. Your hatred of your father consumed you and it consumed me. I don't actually believe that in eighteen ninety five that 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 really accounts for it. I think that the, the two of them were deeply in love. They were being persecuted, and I think. Uh, I think in, from our today's standpoint, uh, that was intolerable. I think Wilde, you know, found it intolerable to be, A, just on a personal level, to be persecuted in this way by Lord Queensbury, uh, by the Marquis. Queensbury showed up at his house and confronted him in his living room. He confronted him in the theatre on the first night of uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, or at least he tried to confront him in the theatre. So, so there's a personal confrontation. Of course, that's out, that would outrage anyone. But I think on political ground, Wilde felt that he had every right, uh, and indeed he did, to be with Lord Alfred Douglas, who was, uh, what, 24? Four, 25 years of age at this point. In my mind, it was a fairly heroic, it was a foolish thing, but it was a heroic thing to do. Because you have the two scenes where he shows up with a prize fighter at his home, while yep. then he tries to go to the theater and disrupt the opening night premiere and, den and denounce Wilde from the stage. Wilde yep. gets into this and stops it. And then he leaves this card at the club where Wilde goes, right? And 10 days later, someone hands him this card. Yes, the card on which Queen's, Queen, having been thrown out of the theatre or not, not able to get into the theatre on the opening night, importance being earnest, so that's Valentine's Day, uh, 1895, uh, Queensbury is seething, so he, he stomps over to Wilde's club, which is not far away, and he leaves this calling card on which he's inscribed for Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite, or at least he can't really spell sodomite, so he spells it sodomite. And uh, he, uh, and then he hands the, the card to the porter and says, give this to Oscar Wilde. He actually puts it in a little envelope, but he doesn't seal the envelope. And then 10 days later, when Wilde goes to the club, it's a full 10 days, the porter gives it to Wilde, and thereafter Wilde determines that he's gonna sue Queensbury for libel. And of course, this is, a, this is exactly what Queensbury wanted because he wanted to get things out in the open and have his day in court. And now Wilde is giving him that day. Um, and then they go, Bozy and Wilde go on vacation somewhere. I can't remember, Monaco or some such place. They go to, uh, yeah, that's right. They go to Monaco, to Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo and yeah. think, oh, well, this is going to be easy to win. I can prove that your father is just a libelous, hard person. Um, and instead, they send all these detectives out and line up all these witnesses. So there's, and then there's ultimately two trials. Can you just sketch out the first trial and the importance of being earned? Um, sorry, the picture of Dorian Gray becomes part of the evidence entered into this trial. Yeah, the, the first trial initially looks like it's going to turn, because Queensbury has said, has accused Wilde of posing as a sodomite. Uh, he's not accused him of being uh, homosexual. He's accused him of representing himself, of posing as one. So the, the case initially turns on Wilde's writings. Uh, uh, a lot, the Queensbury's lawyer puts, invests a lot of the case in showing how Wilde is publicly representing himself and publicly representing his homosexuality or at least representing homosexuality in his writings. So the picture of Dorian Gray, along with uh, Douglas's poem, 
two loves, I think, uh, are, are used as evidence. But Wilde doesn't know at this point that, of course, Queensbury's also set these detectives at work to uncover these secrets of Wilde's life. Um, so this, towards the end, it becomes evident that they are going to use uh, various male prostitutes, Wilde's lovers, uh, as uh, witnesses. And at that point, the libel trial claps. They don't actually come out in court, but it's clear that Queensbury's lawyers have these uh, witnesses to corroborate. Uh, and then, of course, Wilde withdraws his suit, but that's not enough because not only does Queensbury uh, successfully defend himself, it then becomes a criminal prosecution of Wilde himself. The, the evidence is passed to the director of public, public prosecutions who decides to criminally prosecute Wilde for gross, what they call gross indecency. And before, when you said, when you just said um, this uh, two loves poem, Lord Alfred Douglas, the phrase that is now either so famous or maybe a cliche, the love that dare not speak its name, it's actually Lord Alfred Douglas who said that, not Wilde. He responds in this very eloquent moment. He says, this is from Plato. This is Michelangelo. This is Shakespeare. This is the greatest relationship between an, old, an older man, younger man. Yeah. And uh, I think you write that the court breaks into applause at that time. And so Wilde has kind of, the first couple of days, he thinks he's doing well. He's... Talk, playing to the audience, he's on stage, he's charming people, he's elevating this whole thing and saying, I'm an artist, this is about art, this, this is the vile person who, who's trying to attack art. Yes, yes. He, I don't think Wilde ever really thinks he's going to, he's going to um, fail in court, does he? You're right, even in that criminal trial, he, he's still initially playing with the, with the lawyers and with the court. He thinks he, it doesn't cross his mind that he's going to be found guilty. I think what's so interesting, sorry, I think it's so interesting that he's a literary writer, a fiction writer, a poet, and he's quarreling with these lawyers who are also, one of them is, I think, an Irishman, also incredibly gifted, incredibly rhetorically savvy, but he thinks he can win, beat them at their game of using language because it's all a scene of language and not in a sword fight. They're actually just using language. And Wilde thinks, I'm going to have the last word because I'm the wittiest and the best of the best repartee. Yes, yes, that's right. And, and Carson, I think, was an old enemy, right, from Trinity College. Yeah. Known him as a, as a university student. And even before that, in childhood, they say that uh, the two of them shared the same nanny on a summer vacation. So they actually played on the beach in Ireland as, as, as toddlers. Uh, so there's an old enmity, I think, perhaps, with Carson. Which one of them can outwit the other? You know, and these two Irishmen uh, are using their wits, combating their wits in an English courtroom. And I, I just want to add, there's one other element, too. Wilde's mother again this tremendous Irish woman who had fought several court cases without ever backing down, uh, both a court case in the 1840s when uh, her publisher was in court for publishing unpatriotic poetry. And she defends him in court, stands up in court and defends her publisher and says, it wasn't him, it was me, I wrote that editorial. And then later in life, when Wilde's a young man, she defends her husband in court from a charge of rape. Again, she's an incredibly fierce courtroom fighter. And I think her spirit is working. In fact, she said to Wilde, you know, if you don't defend yourself in court, I won't speak to you again, you know. His mother's spirit, her militancy, is, is part of Wilde's spirit too.
And what's on trial in the court, uh, my teacher Shoshana Feldman has uh, written this beautiful essay, she said, what's also on trial is literature itself, is the power of the imagination, that somehow in Victorian England, this is just a writer. So the first yeah. one, as you said, is really not about his behavior, it's about his representation, his imagination. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think Wilde is conscious, too, of how Zola's translator, Visitelli, had been treated. Uh, it, so it's not just himself. I think he, he's representing art. He's representing... He can't stand this new concern with surveillance, with vigilance, with the, 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 the National Vigilance Association. This is association of... Uh, uh, he would call Puritans who wanted to just to police and suppress free speech. Uh, it's not just himself. I think he, he sees his case as a symbolic one. He's representing literature, for sure. He, he's advised by several friends, uh, I think George Bernard Shaw among them, saying, don't do this. Uh, other people have fled Britain at this point, gone to France, and he's going. So he goes into the second trial. The second trial, he's convicted. And then there's this strange moment when, I think you say he's in a hotel, he, and he has a few hours between the announcement or before he will be arrested, and he could probably get on a train and go to Paris or France. Yes, there's a, there's a good number of hours. I think it's like six or seven hours before the, the, uh, the, between the collapse of his libel trial and the moment of his arrest. Uh, and it's clear when the libel trial collapses at 11 o'clock in the morning, when his case against Lord Queensbury uh, collapses, it's clear that Wilde is going to be prosecuted. Uh, in fact, his own counsel has made this clear for him. And in fact, he's not there in court for the closing statements. I think his, his counsel says, you know, you don't need to be here. And I think he said subsequently, I, I was hinting to him he had time to get away to France if he, if he wanted to. So uh, I think, so the, the, in fact, the arrest warrant is delayed and there's a lot of speculation that it was deliberately delayed to allow t time for Wilde to get on that train and flee overseas, as indeed scandalous Victorians had done for decades. Uh, that was what had happened in the Cleveland Street affair, and indeed in many other cases where Victorians who had overstepped the bounds would go to France, typically the, the more open nation, and, and they would uh, exile themselves. It was expected that Wilde would, but he didn't. <laughs> he didn't exile himself. Yeah, and he becomes... Um you know, before we go back, then you write about the next couple of years. So he goes to prison for two years and he gets, um, he finally gets released. He's sentenced to hard labor. So he actually has a really, really hard time. It's two years of really awful backbreaking labor. And then there had been a story, which actually I was more familiar with. He was a broken man. He was defeated. He died kind of unknown. As you said, I think there were a few handful of people at the original funeral. But your book actually says, you call it the unrepentant years, that actually Weil had some hope to rehabilitate his career and emerge as, an, as a writer again. Absolutely. He comes out of jail full of ideas. Uh, and for a good year, uh, I would say, uh, really doesn't question that he's going to rebuild himself as a writer. For the first year after his release, um, he's very active, uh, writes arguably his greatest poem, certainly his best-selling book, the, the Ballad of Reading Jail, puts an awful lot of work into that poem, incidentally, spends months composing it. And, and that poem is really about his time in prison. Well, it's, it's, on one level it is, yes. Yeah. 
one level, it's a very personal poem. And indeed, it centers on an event that took place when he was in prison when a convicted murderer in the same prison as him was executed. So he uses the execution of the convicted murderer as the the, the centerpiece of the poem, but it's much bigger than that. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's a poem about humanity. It's a poem about our capacity to uh, kill the very things we love, the very people we love, our cruelty to one another. Uh, it's, a, it's a poem, of course, about the, the justice system or the injustice system, as he would see it. So I don't, it's not purely, a, and in some ways, it's a very literary poem. It's, it's obviously got debts to the, ancient, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, other literary ballads, arguably uh, the Eve of St. Agnes, uh, uh, Keats's ballads too. And he's always seen himself as a, a, an inheritor of the Keatsian mantle. So he's always wanted to write a great literary ballad. And it is, in many ways, a very great literary ballad. You think this is his greatest poem, really? This is one of his major... Well, uh, I don't know if I... I'm, I'm a, I love the Sphinx as well, his earlier <laughs> poem, uh, which he spent many years of his uh, earlier life writing and finally published a year before he came out of prison, which is his great... Those are, I can't decide which of them is greater. I, I'm probably inclined to the Sphinx. It's the more... It's it, it's a tr- there's nothing <laughs> I love the Sphinx. About <laughs> you saying what else is he hoping to do? So he writes this poem. He publishes. He's now in France. So he leaves England when he gets out of prison. He will not see his sons again. I think he met his wife one last time. She visited him in prison. But in prison, yeah. Uh, the family, the wife, and the the boys have changed their names. Although what's interesting that now you worked actually with his. Great grandson, or his, his grandson. His, his grandson, grandson is still alive. His grandson is very active. He's a terrific wild scholar, incidentally, and in fact, Merlin, yeah, his name uh, it's uh, Merlin Holland. Merlin Holland, uh, he, right? He edited the correspondence, uh, re-edited, and uh, uh, has been working edited the correspondence in two thousand. Uh, he's done a fabulous uh, facsimile edition of the prison letter, De Profundis. Uh, he's a terrific wild scholar. Anybody engaged in wild scholarship knows and, and works with Merlin. Holland because his own work is so good. What I find important about it is that the grandson actually uh, made it his life's work to not just rehabilitate, but actually show the world what a great writer Wilde was because there's that part, of course, to me is just tragic that he never sees his children again. And he, yeah. he, and he, you talk about that, actually, that he tries to have a new life in France. He goes to Naples with Bosi, but there's something also that's not quite working, right? Yeah, I mean, he... he I don't think he really is too um, too overawed at the separation from his wife. The marriage had been on the rocks, I think, for many years. Obviously, uh, you know, there are huge problems in the marriage. But he is torn up about not being able to see his sons. Uh, and that's what really haunts him, both in prison and afterwards. That's a huge terrible, tragic element of, of, of his last years. The, who were his supporters at that time? In your book, you talk about them. Who is actually on his side? And who is because <laughs> he's trying to get published and he's trying to keep on de- doing these deals because he has no money. Uh, <laughs> Marquez or Queensberry, they auctioned his belongings because he had to pay for his first court court. Yes, he's bankrupt. That's right. And he owns a huge bill to the Marquez Queensberry for legal costs. That's the bulk of the... Uh, but the bulk of the bankruptcy is initiated, in fact, by uh, Douglas's father to recover his legal costs. He goes to France. He's always wanted to go to France. He's wanted. He's loved France since he was a young man. 
a lot of his inspiration is in French writing. Uh, I've already mentioned Zola, but the poets, the decadent writers, uh, it's, it's there in the picture of Dorian Gray, right? I mean, it's one of its models is uh, Wiesmans Al Rebour Against Nature, another great decadent novel. Uh, and the, the, the novel that Dorian Gray reads in the early versions is, has a French title. It's a, it's a Parisian novel. So Wilde has always seen himself as a Frenchman. In fact, in 1891, I think it was, when his play Salome was banned in Britain, a play incidentally written in French, uh, he says, I'm going to take up citizenship in France henceforth. And, you know, the French have really welcomed Wilde with open arms uh, up to this point. Uh, even during Wilde's prison sentence, the French intelligentsia, French press, go out of their way to defend Wilde. So Wilde feels that the French intellectually, personally, sexually, there's, that's the place where he belongs. And of course, it's a much more sexually liberal culture. I don't think he really believes that he's going to face so many problems if he goes to France. And initially, he believes he can re rebuild, rebuild himself as a French writer. So in fact, a lot of his defenders are French. He has a lot of friends in Paris. Uh, he has a lot of boyfriends in Paris, too. He's, and he's, he's reconnecting with Bosley, which is also somewhat surprising. And I think the status that he has as a martyr, as a scapegoat, as a kind of really freedom fighter in a way for like the LGBT community, let's say we would call it today, yeah. is because he also reconnects with Bosie. He's not allowed to, this, both families are against it, but they say we have to be back together. Yes, that's right. It's, a, it's only really remarkable, remarkable if you believe what Wilde had written about Bosey in prison. If you ignore that long prison letter, De Profundis, which of course wasn't published until many years later. And, and there's a strong case for thinking Wilde didn't ever intend Douglas to see that letter. Uh, if you ignore that letter completely, it's not such a surprise to me that he got back in uh, with Douglas. The, in, the, in the weeks before Wilde's uh, uh, incrimination, when Wilde is on remand in London jails, in Holloway Prison in London, Douglas is coming to visit him every day in jail. Uh, mm. And there are numerous letters from Wilde, love letters from Wilde to Douglas, written from London jails, proclaiming his eternal love for Douglas, uh, and testifying also to the support and love that Douglas was giving to Wilde in those last days. And then, of course, just before the last criminal trial, Wilde and his lawyers say to Douglas, quite reasonably, you really need to go abroad because you could be prosecuted too. Uh, uh, so they fear for Douglas's safety. So Doug, at that point, Douglas uh, emigrates or exiles himself in France. And so from 1895 till he dies in 1900, so they're, in, they're going to Italy for a bit. Uh, Wilde is trying to revive his literary career. What does England think about him? He's the most celebrated author just 10 years before. He's selling out every theater as a sensation. He's across the Atlantic in America. He's probably one of the best known writers. What does English, because I'm interested in how does a culture actually deal with somebody who's in some ways been sentenced by them to prison and offended yeah. favorably? Well, of course, he's literally is unmentionable. You can't mention the name Oscar Wilde. It was long into the 20th century before the British would actually really? name him. Um, and indeed, when he goes to France, he takes on a pseudonym. He, he doesn't ever, as I recall, publish under the name 
Oscar Wilde. I think the only text that he publishes under the name Oscar Wilde is a letter complaining about prison conditions, a very important letter, by the way, uh, about documenting the mistreatment of prisoners in prison. Otherwise, he doesn't publish as Oscar Wilde in English. So if he's unmentionable, and then your book is called The Unrepentant Years, I think what's interesting, it's a kind of interesting contrast to the earlier Wilde, which I had said earlier that most people that I was exposed to said he's incredibly witty, he's, he has these epigrams, every sentence is quotable, the reversal of common sense, you'd expect the opposite, it's, you know, like losing one parent is, uh, is a terrible tragedy, losing two, it was misfortune, losing two is carelessness, these yeah. kind of quotable things. So he goes from this quotable, eminently well-known celebrity, dressed up, you know, just presenting images uh, through his photographs, and then this unrepentant dimension somehow doesn't seem to easily go with that earlier version that I had of Wilde, where he's just all surface and just famous. Well, actually, some of the lines you quote were actually written in Paris after prison because he published The, the Importance of Being Earnest from Paris, and he spent several months revising the play. And it's during the revisions of the play in early 1899 1898, excuse me, that he incorporates many of those paradoxes and witticisms that we now associate with an earlier moment. But in fact, oh, really? in Paris, so, so the spirit of some of uh, the importance of being honest actually, you know, derives from those last days. Um, I don't think that, uh, except, of course, with his sadness over his children, I think he's strangely liberated by Paris. I mean, he doesn't have to pretend. He doesn't have to suppress himself. He has all these boyfriends. He's not shy of being seen kissing, uh, kissing them on the street or sitting in a you know, a cafe terrace with him. He can be himself, I think, in a strange way. And uh, you, you chronicle that not all of his friends think that's the best idea. They're, no, they're, no, they're, including oh, French oh. homosexual friends. You know, fr people who are concerned with uh, respectability. I think André Gide is particularly nervous uh, of Wilde's openness uh, in, in, in Paris. Uh, you know, the more respectable, those who have aspirations to respectability with a stake in the game, I think, uh, are, 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 are quickly offended. But those really who are on the bohemian cusp of things, you know, Ernest La, La Jeunesse, those tr the true bohemians take to him, you know, he's a master. And so if the name is relatively unmentionable and he's not in English sort of in the in English cultural circles sort of a name. When does the picture of Dorian Gray come back into the sort of as an accepted book to read? And now it's considered a book that, you know, you assign in schools and everybody reads it. I guess we're no longer so worried we're gonna corrupt young people, at least in some societies. Yeah. Well it's republished in is it nineteen oh nine in Paris. It's a very mm -hmm. English publisher uh in Paris, who republishes it, uh, this exquisite edition, I think it's 1909. That's the same year when Wilde's ex literary executor and lover, Robert Ross, is republishing all of Wilde's works. The, the first multi-volume, complete works of Oscar Wilde. It's a fantastic edition that uh, I think it's 14 or 15 volumes that really puts Wilde back on the map in English eyes as a writer. Uh, but Ross, act, Ross's publisher, English publisher, doesn't publish The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's the only volume in the complete works that's published 
by Carrington in Paris. So even then the picture of Dorian Gray is too inflammatory for the English to handle, too hot to handle. But it's still published uniform. I think I think that that moment uh, is an important one in what I call the resurrection of Oscar Wilde as a writer in Britain, 1909. It's when those works are given the imprimatur of respectability, they're widely reviewed in the English press. And what do you think is um, sort of, in the book you said, I started out by saying, you said the book, you brought it a little bit more out of the closet, sort of your book, um, the people who read the book once before maybe uh, the picture of Dorian Gray would read now your annotated uncensored edition. What would they be struck by? Do you think you walk away from the book having really a different sense of what he tried to do in that novel? You know, I'm, I'm not a gay man, but I, my sense is that gay readers have always felt that there was more to the novel than, uh, than was simply evident on the page, that those silences and evasions spoke louder than words. Maybe that's, a, you know, a mark of uh, difference from the way that I was reading those silences and evasions, uh, you know, when I was younger. So I think for certain readers, it's always been a text that speaks, even if in, obliquely and indirectly, of homosexuality. I suppose when I say I brought it out of the closet, I suppose I mean I'm, I'm making that clearer to a much broader array of readers. Uh, and in a way that makes it as I say, clearer, because when Basil Hallward says, uh, you know, there, were, it was there was love in every stroke, brushstroke, uh, love and passion in every brushstroke, it's clearly evident, you know, making, restoring that kind of material, I think, makes it... Uh, Would you read it as a kind of tragic love story? Well, that, <laughs> yes, certainly from Basil Hallward's point of view. I mean, Basil Hallward is certainly, uh, I think in some ways, Basil Hallward is the, the, you know, the tragic lover, isn't he? Yes. Uh, I think so. And I think what's kind of interesting is today, uh, if I'm reading it today, and I think the Profundus was republished a couple of weeks ago and sort of it's the 125th anniversary or something in a fancy edition and it's Pride Month and they sort of, it's linked to sort of gay liberation. And I think what's interesting is you have a second edition of this book, that this book goes through its own iterations, that Wilde revised it, that it opens up something else. And I think that still connects, I think, the tragic love story part, I think that's really rejected by a lot of queer people today say, we don't just want tragic stories that end terribly, yeah. but it opens up something else. And it, what I really like about your biography, The Unrepentant Years, that Wilde didn't, he never apologized. He never really specified, this is the thing I did that was wrong, or this is the thing I did that I'm proud of. He said, this is the yeah. life I live. And yeah. all this criticism is something I will not, like I suffered through it, but... I'm going to keep on doing new things. There's something about the opening of that. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm going to keep on doing the things that I do because I believe in my right to do them, you know. And I think he says, doesn't he say at one point in Paris, the only thing is for a, the, the, a repeal of the Criminal Law Amendment Act. That's the anti-homosexual legislation by which he, he's very clear that this legislation uh, is unjust and, and repressive. Uh, and indeed he set out, I mean, one of the things that, is remarkable about the Wilder comes out of prison is that he wants to change legislation. He wants to change the conditions in prisons. He wants to change the, the treatment of prisoners. He can see how it's a, you know, crime against humanity, the way that the Victorian, uh, Victorian prisons, and he sets out to do that. And I think in some, to some extent, he does succeed in doing that. You know? It's amazing. I'm going to ask you a really strange question, but 
since you're just saying he was invested in prison reform, he's writing actually for the rights of people who are nothing like him, probably, you know, people who were convicted of other crimes. And he says they're treated inhumanely in this system that Michel Foucault becomes kind of one of the patron saints of also of gay liberation and is also starting out by saying he's talking about prison, discipline and punish. The books were incarceration and the penal system, sort of the punish, the sort of the prison system is a way of limiting people. Uh, yes. Justly. So a kind of strange connection. And I actually don't know. I have to look whether Foucault actually, I mean, I'm sure you read Wilde. He's a Frenchman. Everybody reads Wilde in France, right? Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, the overlap has occurred to me, but I can't think of moments where Foucault invites Wilde, but uh, uh, excuse me, invokes Wilde directly. Yeah. But they, there is a lot of overlap, isn't there? And it's the, the punishment of the body and the, the repression of the body and the suppression, the refusal right. to, and to allow the body to be the body, I think. Yeah, I think that's the key point, what you just said. I think that's right. It's, I think it's better than what I said about prison. I think Foucault's interest in how the body is regulated or punished or made to conform with certain expectation. Yes. It's interest. The, um, one final thing. So Bosey writes his own um, biograph- autobiography in the 30s. He becomes a Catholic. He's kind of interesting. So he has a whole afterlife. And I think there's also this way, which happens in many cases, he's relegated to a footnote of literary history. And I had a conversation two weeks ago about Emily Dickinson, uh, where Higginson, who is the editor, who actually really gets her poems to be uh, sort of collected, ultimately, probably ultimately published these footnotes to literary history. So Bosey has his own voice also. And when you worked on your book, how much did you pay attention to him as his own person? Well, you know, he was always, I was always interested in Bosey as a way to understand Wilde better. I mean, in going back to Bosey's letters, and I do have a, you know, a better sense of Bosey as a speaker and a writer by having looked at more closely at his letters and his poetry, because they do speak of his love for Wilde and of Wilde's love for him. So, you know, I do invoke a lot of material by Bosey in my biography, but it was, all, it was always subservient to my interest in trying to do justice to the love between these men and the love of What did he try to do, Bosey, about his own life? How did he explain this whole episode in his life later well, on? Well, he became very convoluted, you know, he's a fascinating but a very, very difficult and in many ways a very unstable man. I mean, he turned against Wilde uh, and he turned against Robert Ross in particular, his competitor for Wilde's love. Robert Ross was Wilde's first male lover. Um, Wilde's lover, a good, excuse me. It's the dogs. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I think the postman has arrived. Can we edit this out a bit? Later? No, that's fine. We love dogs. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, podcast sometimes. <laughs> so, so Ross is purportedly Wilde's first male lover. They both Wilde and Ross said that during their lifetimes. This is a good five years before uh, Douglas comes on the scene. And uh, while Wilde is in Paris, Ross really takes care of him, looks after him, manages his money. Uh, takes care of his personal arrangements, and indeed, when Wilde dies, a nurse nurses Wilde through ill health, takes care of the funeral, and ultimately becomes Wilde's executor. Uh, and in his role as executor, and also as a reflection of Ross's love for Wilde, in 1905, Ross publishes a redacted version of the prison letter to Lord Douglas, De Profundis, this letter in which 
all these recriminations against Douglas, as well as a lot of love, are expressed. And I, as I said earlier, I don't believe that Wilde ever meant this to be seen by Douglas. Uh, in fact, I don't believe that Wilde ever really wanted it published, but there were certainly things in the letter that Wilde did want published, and Ross publishes them. And that brings down a firestorm later. So Douglas turns against Ross and ultimately turns against Wilde in a very, very violent way. And, and at the same time, he repudiates his own early homosexuality, tries to uh, have a marriage and a child uh, through that marriage. Um, it doesn't work out. He's very conflicted about his own sexuality for much of the uh, 20th century rights. A number of books against Oscar Wilde, very vehemently against him. You can't really trust very much that, uh, that Douglas says about the relationship written in those years. But just what, for me, what's interesting, what Douglas writes in the years before he turns against Wilde's memory, I find there's, such, there's a grain of truth to them. I, I can read those writings as honest expressions. I find this whole uh, story just, what you're saying, there's such complexity in it. Ross kind of seems very kind of jealous or envious and sort of protects the, the legacy of Wilde and sort of defends against all these other lovers. I discovered this little edition of um, Wilde's letter to Douglas um, in the 1924 edition published in California, which uh, the most amazing thing about this little edition, which exists in two copies in America, at Columbia University and UCLA, and then at Trinity College Dublin and in London. So there's five copies that I'm aware of. Phyllis Rosenbach, who is the greatest book dealer in American history, after whom the Rosenbach Museum is a library in Philadelphia is named, he writes an afterword to this little tiny book and says, we're including a letter by Bosey that is not transcribed in the original facsimile and people can judge for themselves whether this was real. And I actually looked at this and then I wrote to the Rosenbach and said, are you aware that he actually took the time and the pain to write a preface to a and they said, we want these letters to be available to American readers. So it was published in 1924. So I actually, I was religious, so I transcribed and republished this little letter by Bowsey because it's what you're saying. There's something very deep and authentic before he turns much later in life against yeah. Wilde. Um, and the other thing I found interesting that it's, it's like one of those things for those who know, why did Philip Rosenbach, who has a biography written about him, who was the greatest book dealer in the world, you know, who bought Ulysses, who was like basically established book dealing as an, as, a, as an art and a business. Why does he bother to write this? And he's never married. Yeah. He lived with his brother in Philadelphia. They keep terrapins in their basement to make turtle soup. They have a very strange and interesting life. <laughs> but I found no record at all that anybody has ever seen this book or mentioned it. Hmm. To me, this, this, is, this is a clear sign. Like, why would someone bother in 1924 to say, I want to put Wilde and Bozzi out here and I'm going to take the time to write this preface for some other, for a private edition of 100 copies that were printed in California. Mm. Which, it's still a signal sort of to identify it. Like you have that book on you, like on the train or something, you're saying something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Max Beerbohm says it's, it, that's the tragic love story. It's the, it's the, uh, the Bozzi, it's not so much... Well, I suppose the, you know, arguably the picture Dorian Gray is too, but certainly the uh, Douglas Wilde love affair is the great tragic love story. Once people have, uh, when they've reread the picture of Dorian Gray, the importance of being Ernie's Lady Windermere's fan, you're just publishing now uh, with Belknap Press at Harvard or Harvard University Press his uh, fairy tales or short stories. What, what short stories, yes. Uh, so yeah. It includes a number of fairy tales. He, he, he was very attached to the term fairy tales because he was a great critic of realist fiction. He did a lot of 
realism. It has to be imaginative. It has to be art. So the form of the fairy tale is one that Wilde was really fascinated by and brilliant at. And he doesn't see fairy tales as a children's form merely. In fact, arguably, they are a true, in Wilde's mind, a, a true art form, you know, like a lyric poem. They are as artistic as fiction gets. So I'm, publi- I'm republishing a number of them, a, n- a number of his short stories and fairy tales, yes. But they're coming out now. That's really wonderful. So maybe at some other point, I'd love to talk to you about those. Because <laughs> I actually love some of those stories. I think they're just magical. And- oh, they are magical. He's a spellbinding storyteller, you know. I mean, he's famous, of course, for the, uh, the plays. And he's a brilliant dramatist because he had the speaking voice, the, 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 his attention to speech to the, the, the rhythm of living speech. But by the same token, he loved to tell stories. He loved to spin tales. And that, of course, comes out very eloquently in his fictions. It's there in Dorian Gray, but it's in all his short fictions. They're wonderful fictions uh, with tremendous narratives. Um, Nick, we have to stop. I think we've done uh, Oscar Wilde some honor to actually go on <laughs> quite a while. He's an Irish poet, really. So <laughs> the gift of language and gab, clearly. Um, but I wouldn't just say I read Ellison's biography, of course. I read Michelle Mendelssohn's The Making Us of Oscar Wilde, yes. which is the American tour. And the Unrepentant Years I really love because you have this kind of deep compassion, empathy for Wilde as a character and sort of all the ambiguities of being ostracized in England, trying to find a life again in France. I really loved that book because it really changed my way of thinking about this case as just a tragic trial and he's just this victim of uh, Victorian England. Thank you. I'm so grateful to you. That that was my intention, you know, to try to get him out of this tragic box that Elman and others had put him into uh, and try to focus attention on these years in their own right. Yeah, so, so thank you. And then you have the annotated uncensored edition of the picture of Dorian Gray now, the short stories coming out. So it's a lot of wild. <laughs> yes, he's, he's uh, you know, in some ways, these these editions write themselves. I think I'm animated by the spirit of wild. It's nothing I'm doing. I think in a way, I'm just uh, letting him speak through me. <laughs> that is, that is uh, charmingly humble, but it's not just that they're, you're doing a lot of work, actually. That Every preface I felt was an entire interpretation was totally, like, made me look at the work, at the book really differently. And I'm going to try my best to edit this quickly so we can release it during Pride Month because <laughs> it's June 2020 right now. That's fitting. Um, there used to be a bookstore, a gay bookstore in New York City called the Oscar Wilde Bookstore, of course, which is yeah. now long gone and closed. Yeah. But that used to be for a lot of people, I think, for many decades, it used to be the signifier of um, freedom and liberation. Yeah. Good. That's it. That's it, isn't it? That, that's it. He, in a way, he does embody a spirit of freedom and a spirit of what rights really mean. You know, I, I think he's a liberatory figure for many, many people. Uh, and I think today, like, what else, what more could we want in the world when we are going through, you know, necessary yeah. social unrest and the, the Black Lives Matter movement? I think Wilde can be one of those figures for people. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you also for joining me on Zoom during this pandemic. It was a pleasure to do it, Ollie. I really appreciate your questions and your conversation. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Thank you. Be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye now.